I'm Effie Parks. Welcome to Once Upon a Jane, the podcast. This is a place I created for us to connect and share the stories of our not-so-typical lives. Raising kids who are born with rare genetic syndromes and other types of disabilities can feel pretty isolating. What I know for sure is that when we can hear the triumphs and challenges from others who get it, we can find a lot more laughter, a lot more hope, and feel a lot less alone. I believe there are some magical healing powers that can happen for all of us through sharing our stories, and I'll take all the help I can get. Hello, friends. I'm so happy you're here. This is Once Upon a Gene, and I'm your host, Effie Parks. Two days after the airing of this episode, it's going to be April 17th, 2021, World Hemophilia Day, a day to raise awareness for hemophilia and other inherited bleeding disorders. So in honor of that day, I have a super special guest for you. Every other day, he has to give himself a needle in his arm and infuse himself with a medication. His liver doesn't produce a protein that makes his blood vessels seal up when they burst, which apparently happens all the time to all of us. He and his brother were both born with hemophilia. They were in it together, and they each had someone who could relate. And then one day he lost his brother, Adam, to this disorder, life-sustaining medicine that his brother failed to take. After this loss, he felt compelled to reach others like his brother. The young people who maybe weren't taking their disease seriously enough for whatever reason, or to simply give them a community of support. He knew he had to do something before more young people lost their life too. He's figured out a way to reach young people in an entertaining way and help them to feel empowered. It's incredible how much he's accomplished thus far. He's a weird energizer bunny kind of guy. He's the founder and CEO of Believe Limited, and he thinks if this was around when his brother Adam was here, that he would still be alive today. He hosts camps, produces web series, makes workbooks, workshops. He hosts the incredible Bloodstream podcast. He's produced a film with blood brother Chris Bombardier, and Chris is the first person with hemophilia to climb the seven summits. It's called Bombardier Blood, and you can rent it in a lot of places. I rented it on Amazon. I'm so grateful to be connected with him, and I felt like I was talking to a friend the day I met him, and I think you will too, back when he hosted me on his podcast, Bloodstream. If this isn't enough to add to his list of awesomeness, he also recently became a dad a couple months ago. Anyways, let's get into it. Please enjoy my conversation with Patrick James Lynch. Hi, Patrick. Welcome to the show. Hi, Effie. Thanks for having me on. Yes, I'm very excited to talk to you. I had the pleasure of getting to know you a little better a few weeks ago when I met you and Amy on your podcast. So I kind yes. of have just been following along with you since. And, you know, you're kind of in my little circle now. So <laughs> I have to say you were such an awesome guest and you really brought it. So this morning as I was thinking about it, I was like, oh, man, I got to be a good guest because Effie came on and I'm like, kind of nailed it. So uh, oh a little gosh. bit of pressure. I was listening to episodes. I was like, I wanted to make sure I was ready for this this morning. So I, I'm as prepared <laughs> as I've ever been for a podcast conversation. <laughs> that is so funny. I feel the same way about you. You're like, I was telling you earlier that you're like 18 people in one. You're a film producer, a content creator, a podcaster, a patient, an advocate. You're a new dad. It's like, what <laughs> do we talk about with Mr. Patrick? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of balls in the air and I haven't gained any more arms. So it, it is an interesting thing <laughs> to be sure. 
Yeah, you just actually start losing some some memory capacity, so that'll happen. Okay, good. That's what I get to look forward to as a parent. Yep, it'll just go away. You'll like have a muscle memory at some point, but you won't really be able to go back. Oh, that's frightening considering how poor my memory is to begin with. So that's that's nice. <laughs> <laughs> well, Patrick, let's just start a little bit at the beginning. Obviously, this is a loaded question, so compact mm. it as needed. But let's start at the beginning. And how, what led you exactly to getting into this field of content creating and podcasting? Sure. Yeah. Very fair first question. So I went to school for acting. I went to Boston University's School of Theater, where I was an acting major and had every intention on graduating and being an actor in the world, doing theater and commercials and film and television. I was working in New York uh, right out of school and doing a little bit of all those things I just mentioned and starting the path of this is what you do as a professional actor. You know, you have a one day job here, you got a two day job here, you leave town for three weeks to do a thing, you come back. And I thought, okay, this is working. And this is this is what I'm supposed to be doing as a, as a storyteller. I, I really thought this was my thing. And here, here I am. But unfortunately, a few weeks before I graduated, my brother very unexpectedly passed away. Both he and I were born with severe hemophilia. And when he was a freshman in college, it was toward the end of his freshman year. And um, we just got that terrible phone call one morning and came to discover that he had suffered a head bleed and he had no medicine in his system at the time. He had uh, at least temporarily fallen off of his prophylactic regimen of taking medicine to manage his hemophilia, left him vulnerable, this head injury occurred, and he died in his sleep. So that was obviously monumentally just changed my life. And sadly, it wasn't even the only death within the inner circle within the year. So that was a very difficult time. And when I came out of school, as I just said, I was doing all the acting things that you're supposed to do. But I was really, really bothered. A aside from grieving my brother and missing him uh, personally, I was also just as like the, the, the math brain part of me was also just so bothered by that piece where he fell off of his regimen and didn't have the medicine in his system that may have saved his life. You know, chances are if he had had it in him, would he have woken up with a major head thing? Yeah, very likely, but there would have probably been opportunities to live. And that didn't happen for him. And I wanted to know why. We had the same upbringing, the same doctor, the same diagnosis, the same this, the same that. We're only two and a half years apart in age. Why is it that he uh, allowed himself to get complacent in that ultimately, you know, life-threatening and life-costing way, uh, whereas that was not really something that I ever experienced. And I wanted to know why. What was the difference? And what I boiled it down to after spending a lot of time on that topic was that simply put, my brother never really fully identified with what it meant to have hemophilia. You know, we're really lucky as, as people with hemophilia in the United States of America in 2021. Care is great. There are a lot of medicines out there, as Effie, as you know, you and I know well. Most rare diseases, the overwhelming majority, about 95%, don't have a single FDA drug on the market. Well, hemophilia is at the the other end of the spectrum. We have a lot of drugs on the market and a lot of options to see uh, how this medicine works within my specific body. So that's wonderful. And it means that I get to live a really fruitful life. I'm, I'm 35 when if I was born a generation ago, I most likely would have been dead by 20. And if I was born in most of the world when I was born, I would probably be dead by now. But I was born here. 
and I was born when there was medicine and I was born, I actually was a part of, there was blood contamination in the, in the eighties and nineties where HIV and hep C was in the blood supply and was in blood products amongst them, those used to treat hemophilia. And in fact, the hemophilia world as a result of that tragedy the advocacy that it uh, gave way to means that amongst other things, the hemophilia world has actually had a lot to do with the nation's blood supply and blood safety. So kind of an interesting little position that we never thought we would find ourselves in, but alas. So all of that is to say, hemophilia can be really well managed with medicine in the right circumstances now, but you have to take that medicine. You have to do the things that keep you as an individual patient healthy. My brother didn't identify, so he didn't do those things when he was off in college and on his own. We had a mother, We, my mother's still alive. She's a nurse, so she took great care of him. We had a great hemophilia uh, hematologist. She took great care of him. He was really well, well cared for until he had to do it for himself. So I wanted to use my skills then as a storyteller to help reach people like my brother who were living living with this thing that at its core was life-threatening, but that with the right self-care and the right commitment to one's own health, it would not stop you from living a full, healthy, happy life. I can't do anything for my brother now, but I can do something about the very many other people like him who are living with one of these things and struggle at times to identify with what that really fully means. And that's when I called my uh, my various agents and uh, surprised them all when at 23 as a working actor, I was like, I'm not, I'm not going to do this anymore. They thought that was a strange move. And from a certain perspective, they were right. But I, at a certain point, I had the aha. I was like, I need to I need to focus my energy on creating stuff that will make a difference for people like my brother. And I can't do that and do this at the same time. So I need to stop this and go figure out what that means. And that's the, that's the simple story, but that was 2010. And uh, six months later, I was having a conversation with Ryan Geelan, my co-founder at Believe Limited, about a concept for a hemophilia mockumentary series that was kind of like The Office and would break the fourth wall where we could talk directly to the patient community and would have a patient in the role, but also he's an actor and this is a real show. And that became Stop the Bleeding, which is still going. So that was where it all started. And I'm just, I mean, it's crazy to be here with you now and 10 years later to see all of what it's become. Well, I think the motivation behind your intention is is why that's happening, obviously. And I just want to say I'm so sorry for the loss of your brother, Patrick. Thank you. Yeah, it's uh, it sucks. I mean, it, it sucks, but I'm enriched by all his life has inspired and the ripple effect that his life has had. And at the same time, Effie, as you know, you mentioned becoming a dad recently. There's still parts of the grieving of his loss that took place in 2007 that I haven't fully processed, you know, the turning tragedy into comedy and turning the bad into good and the silver linings. And that's all important. But the thing that I, I think I didn't realize was that just because I was using my energy and my inspiration for noble things and it's very well intended, it on a personal level didn't mean that my grieving and my healing needed any less attention. But I kept myself so busy for so long that I was able to get away with fully, I guess, digesting the impact of what his loss meant. So there's been a little bit of emotional catching up in that regard. And I'm happy to say now with baby and, and Natalie, my wife, our unit uh, and Russell, the dog shouldn't leave him out, hates being left out. You can't hug if you're near Russell because he will wherever he could be in a dead sleep upstairs behind a closed door. And somehow within two seconds of that hug, he's right there jumping up on his back legs with his paws in the air. He wants to be lifted up in a part of the hug. So can't leave out Russell. But I do feel like now I'm like, OK, here I am. 
I, I know who I am. I know the things that are most important about me. I know where I still have room to grow and things that need to be addressed, but I'm ready for where I am in, in my life. And that's given me a, a lot of confidence. Mm, I love that. And yeah, grieving, it's not linear, right? It, things pop up no. at different points in your life that bring you back to certain moments that maybe you hadn't processed through yet or differently. Mm-hmm. And it's it's just a constantly evolving universe, really, separate from anything. And can be terribly inconvenient. Yes, yes. Especially when you have this beautiful little fat newborn and you're yeah. supposed to feel all of these happy things. And that's right. You go to yeah, you have that ache, right, from all of the things. It's human, which has its own beautiful elements to it, too. You mentioned that you were busy a lot and that that was maybe something that prevented you or prolonged something and that you threw yourself into school and stuff. And I wonder, with it being acting and theater world, was that like a companion to you through grief or was it some sort of outlet that like made you hmm. distance yourself from reality or was it a place for you to actually process things? because you could like be someone else. And does that make sense? Oh my God, I love this question. Yeah, so the thing that comes up right away, one of my first big jobs after my brother died and after I graduated, which was three weeks later, was... Uh, a new play, part of the Humana New Play Festival, which is one of the biggest new play festivals of the year. I don't know if this is still true, but it was at the time. And <laughs> it takes place in Louisville, Kentucky, and it's a festival schedule in one weekend. Dramaturgs and literary managers from the whole network of regional theaters across the country descend upon Louisville to see all the new plays that are filled with all these Broadway and off-Broadway names and television people and decide if they want them as part of their season next year. And then the following weekend, all the critics from New York and Los Angeles and Chicago and everywhere else come and they write pieces about it. So it's just like a big kerfuffle, which was fun. The show I was in called All Hail Hurricane Gordo, bit of a title. You Perfect. <laughs> I played Gordo and Gordo, he, the play is about him and his brother, Chaz. And you learned very early on that when they were children, they were abandoned by their parents. At, I think we decided it was like ages 13 and 11. And we meet them in their 23, 21, 24, 22, something like that. And we learned that they've been selling off everything in the house and forging things and doing everything they could to continue to live without anyone actually knowing. But that was beginning to come to a head. And in the play, the big thing that occurs is that the the caretaker brother to Gordo has to make a decision about whether or not to stay with his brother. And uh, I'm going to spoil the play. So if you hate when that happens, this is your moment to fast forward 30 seconds. At the end of the play, Gordo wakes up one morning and his brother has left him. And he's abandoned and he's alone. And then his brother comes home and they start their routine and they're back together again. That was one of the first plays I did after Adam died. I did it in Louisville and then we did it a little bit in Pittsburgh and then somewhere else, Cleveland. And, um, and I mentioned the cities too, because I was also away from home. And when you're an actor on the road, it can be very, I mean, when you're, I think any job on the road, it can be very lonely at times. So that was extremely challenging. And on one hand, I felt like it gave all of my emotion and experience a place to go and a way to be useful. And for 100, 200, 300 people a night, eight shows a week for X number of weeks, I could use my skills and my life experience in this really productive way so that these people could come and escape or laugh or learn or a little bit of everything, or maybe even just take a nap. You know, sometimes people are falling asleep in the theater and it's like, hey man, if that's what you need, just don't snore too loud, please. I was really happy about that part of it. But I think you made a very, your question's astute. Um, there, there was also an element of it that was absolutely escapist and a piece of it that 
I kind of felt like, all right, well, that's where I'm dealing with my feelings. So when I'm not on stage and not doing that, I don't need to, I can do other things and I'll let me keep writing this thing and let me do this thing. Let me do that thing. So on one hand, it, it was a companion. That's a great way to put it. It did help me process. It did give me opportunities to put my emotion places that were safe and productive and, and healthy. But on the other hand, I think it did sneakily permit me more opportunities to escape than perhaps I should have taken at that time. I could have probably benefited from a bit more stillness and slowness, but it took a couple of years until that came. And when that came, I'll say it did hit me hard. There was there was a period a few years after Adam died where I was really not in a great spot and had to um, pick myself up and take some stock of what had actually happened. So yeah, that's a great question. And I, a, a little bit of both, I guess, is the answer. I think for everyone, but especially maybe people with chronic conditions and someone going through grief and loss, mental health alongside your rare disease can be pretty invisible. And there's just so many ways that we hope to learn how to speak about it, right? And I love that you're doing it through the medium of entertainment and with visuals and audio, right? Through your movies and your shows and your podcasts. And it's incredible. And I do think it's very interesting because it does appeal to a younger audience. It appears to everyone, but I think the younger audience is definitely more inclined to jump on your train since you're speaking to them not as an authoritative figure. So can you kind of segue into how you're using your entertainment business as a whole as an advocacy tool for these young people to maybe pay attention and not be so blasé about things? Yeah, I mean, happy to. So Believe Limited, our, our mission is to create entertainment that affects change. Everything we do is about leading with entertainment because it is my and our philosophy that through entertainment, you can really meaningfully, meaningfully engage so that you can educate and thereby empower patients, families, and those who care to reach. But in my opinion, the E's have to be in that order. Entertain, engage, educate, empower. And I think too often, especially within the, the world of health and chronic disease and rare disease, we love education. We hit education a lot. We like empowerment. We talk about empowerment and that's good. Entertainment can be a dirty word and engagement, is that just a fancy way to talk about like people in a room together? We don't even know what that means. I believe very strongly that people respond to that, which moves them, which entertains them, which appeals to their heart. And if we lead with that, there's a lot of latitude for what we can say next with their attention. So that's why things like Bombardier Blood feature film, it's about Chris climbing Mount Everest and it's big and it's entertaining, but there's a really important message in there. The Bloodstream podcast is intended to be fun and Amy and I have a good time like preparing for that and just being fun podcasters. But in every episode, there's stuff that needs to be talked about. We have a music theater workshop program that's about learning to express in alternative ways and find community through things other than sports, which can be quite challenging at certain ages and certainly in certain pockets of the country. So I think with every project that we have done, we have looked at what's the need. We always start there. What is the need that we are attempting to address? And then how are we uniquely well positioned to address it? And if we can answer those two questions, then we're on to a creative exercise of, okay, what's the thing? And to your point, being able to give young people ways to connect that are a little less clinical, medical, scary, that are a little more fun, a little more about community, a little bit more about self-empowerment, that are judgment-free and not about just hammering on the most important self-care principles. I think it's allowed a lot of young people who I've met and, and older people, but young people especially, 
to lean in in a way that I don't know that they were given the opportunity to previously. So I love that that term lean in. That's my goal always is I believe if the entertainment is strong enough, somebody will lean in. I don't have to scream at them. I don't have to throw it at them. If it's strong enough, they will lean in. And if it continues to prove itself worthwhile, they'll stay. And so far, I have found that to be true. And I, I think, too, Effie, one other point I'll make on this, aside from the entertainment stuff, which obviously is very important to me and entertainment as a kid, as a kid who had hemophilia and immunological responses to the medicine and was laid up a lot. Entertainment was both a way uh, that I experienced the outside world and escaped from my reality. To go back to the question that you asked about theater and performance, I think as a kid, it was entertainment operated on me at both levels and frankly still does. So I believe very strongly in its power and it gives people an opportunity to connect in a way that when it comes to their their health and medical, there's just not another comp. The camp world, I think, does a nice job of bringing an energy that intersects well with entertainment. And that for many years would be my comp when I would be talking with potential funders of a project about its entertainment goals and why that why they were what they were and what it would lead to. My comp would often be think about camp. Think about how much we in the hemophilia world anyway talk about the value of hemophilia camp and bonding with other people and having a peer-to-peer environment and being outside of a, in a non-clinical environment, building community, exploring parts of yourself outside of your condition. We value all those things a lot at camp. How come we can't value them more the rest of the year? How come we can't value them more through the content we put out online? How come we can't value them more through the sessions that take place at these meetings all the time? And little by little, people thought, oh, that's actually a pretty good point. And so I was given some shots to meet that need. Oh, I love all of that that you said, especially the ease that you broke down. <laughs> And yeah, the camp. Okay, let's talk about Bombardier Blood real quick. Okay. Bombardier Blood is a documentary that you produced, and it's beautiful. Go watch it. You can rent it on Amazon or wherever Patrick wants you to rent it. <laughs> and it, it follows Chris Bombardier, right? That's right. Like the coolest name of all. No kidding. And there was a scene in there with... A camp, right? For uh, kids who have hemophilia yes. and adults that are alongside them, teaching them how to put in their their needles and, yes. you know, walk them through it like it's cool because all these cool older people are doing it. And while I, as a mother, saw that and like my heart broke a little, it was also just so beautiful. And I saw these kids, I saw fear shedding away from them. And mm. I saw them educating themselves, like you said, and empowering themselves, sure, and maybe having fun with these grownups. But really, they were engaged. And, you know, they were helping. It was it was so beautiful. And it was just a short scene. But I think it's a real testament to your community at large and the rare disease community for sure is always there but I just I loved that scene in the movie and I'm so glad you included it it's amazing you say that I, I don't mean to interrupt you but you've gotten me excited mentioning that scene because you know that was cut until one of our final cuts a lot of scenes came and went and were reimagined and repositioned and you know editing is <laughs> quite a thing but that scene in particular you're right it's only about I think like a minute and five seconds and it was in in the beginning and then it was out for a long time. And as I would watch more and more cuts and we started doing some private screenings, it was too big a missing piece to me. And I thought this is really important. I know why I thought we should cut it, but now I think we need to bring it back. And your citing it is exciting because it just it's yet again a reminder that it is so important as a creative and to be 
to stay sensitive and to stay aware throughout the entirety of the process. Because I think it could have been easy enough for me to just forget about that scene once we decided to cut it and to move on. But because I didn't, it found its way back in and it sticks out to people. There's something about where it's placed, what it means for Chris, the turning point that it is in his story. It's a scene that really pops and, and obviously did for you. So I'm glad you said that. And uh, I'm going to give myself a little pat in the back. <laughs> I'm sure I didn't cut that scene. Yes. Good job, Patrick. <laughs> pat away. Thank and you. You know, that reminds me that I've, I've heard you talk about soul and authenticity, and I connect with you so deeply on that concept. And I think it comes through in scenes exactly like the one you decided not to keep out. Can you explain a little bit about what you mean when you're preaching about the soul regarding your work, whether it's through your podcast or through your films? My wife and I did a podcast for Bloodstream where we talked about our birth story and it was, <laughs> I was sheepish at first about asking her like, hey, do, would you want to do this? Because we just, she just gave birth. There was some pretty big trauma involved. We're just starting the road to recovery. And, he, you know, here comes her husband, the content producer. He's like, hey, you want to do a podcast about it? But, you know, as I was thinking about what we experienced, the more I thought about it, it's like, why, why do we have a podcast in hemophilia advocacy, where we talk about the importance of these things. Why do we constantly discuss the uh, the need to amplify stories, the importance of personal stories so that people can connect people to people? If I'm gonna, I, I gotta, I gotta practice what I preach. So I, I gotta talk about it. And if I'm gonna talk about it, then Natalie, I want to extend the invitation because I I think you ought to be there too. And so we did talk about it and it, you know, it was a little anxious going into it. And afterwards like, wow, all right, we really, we said a lot of stuff. I cannot tell you how many responses we have gotten from that episode. And it's a reminder that people are seeking connection. People are seeking things that are true, even if it's not their truth. They want to hear and see and feel some aspect of the human experience when they engage with content, or when they're listening to a speaker, or they're a part of a presentation. Data is important. Statistics and science. We know in the rare disease world how vital science is, but it is not the only thing that matters. Connecting to people because of their authentic, authentic selves and their willingness to put that out there, that can be the difference between life and death. And frankly, as an advocate, I think there's nothing more important. Whenever our hemophilia world's preparing for lobbying in D.C., or I actually had emails this morning about an upcoming California state legislative days and the policy priorities of that. Policy priorities are important. And going in there and knowing what our ask is and knowing how to conduct ourselves, that's important. You know what the most important moment of those meetings always is? The personal shares. Now, you got to make sure to be uh, mindful, personal shares that start going on and on and on and on and on go from being highly effective to devastatingly boring and problematic. However, that's why we have the trainings and as advocates, we prepare for those kinds of things. But at the core, it's that authenticity. Yes, I can give people statistics about half of all people with severe hemophilia in 2022 will die before age 20. That's true. But what I have found and what's there's studies on this. What's actually more motivating to people is if I tell you the story of a young boy in Nepal who had to have uh, a joint replacement surgery following the death of his brother and then develop this immune response. But look at him and look what he has to say now. That is going to be more impactful than if I just cite off a litany of data. And the only way that I know to do that personal share piece and really try to connect human to human is to be willing to share as much of myself as possible, not 
in a look at me, look at me kind of way, but in an authentic, revealing way, in a way that hopefully helps somebody connect to something that they either hadn't before or thought they were the only one to experience or something. But I, I just don't think that there's any way to do really good. I, frankly, I don't think there's a way to create great art if the creator's not willing to do that. So as a writer, as an actor, as a producer, as a director, I don't, if I'm not putting my soul into something, it's hard for me to tell you to go watch it. And if you do, you probably won't respond. So that's why I believe it's just vital for us as artists to speak and to create from a place of authenticity. But as advocates, it's just as important. I'm like that gif with that baby in that church and the hands like waving back and forth. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> Telling your story and sharing your truth can be a matter of life and death for someone else. Mentally, physically, exactly what you said. Yeah. Yeah. Awareness and curiosity, like you were talking about earlier, it's such a tool, right? And I think it's something that you always have to hone, but just even becoming aware of it in general is so eye-opening and it can move you forward yes. in so many ways. Yes. Would you say that that is something that has been maybe one of your hardest lessons to learn or is there one that was kind of like the hardest hurdle that you had to get over that perhaps you're most proud of now? Uh, it's a great question. I, I, certainly one of the most challenging hurdles I have had to get over in the last number of years. We talked about Bombardier Blood already, but Bombardier Blood, I'm I'm director, co-writer, producer. Uh, one of the first questions that you get when you're director, co-writer, producer of a documentary about a guy climbing Everest is, oh, so did you go to the mountain? And the answer to that question, or did you climb the mountain actually is always the first question. And then, no. Oh, did you go? No, I didn't. I couldn't. My body physically couldn't take what it takes to even get to base camp of Mount Everest. So our producer became also the mountain director and mountain cinematographer. There were a lot of elements of that project that were out of my control. And I had to learn what it meant to be a feature length documentary film director for a film that I was going to only be on set and shooting a portion of really. What does that mean? How do I set my team up for success? How do I continue to manage the overall story and the writing and the editing of it? You know, getting over my own feelings about that. That was tough. That was, that was hard because I didn't like the part where I couldn't participate in so many of the crucial pieces. At least that's how it felt. But that's a reality on every project has its wrinkles and nuances and notes at the bottom of the page that need to be taken into consideration. And those were amongst the notes on this project. I had to learn how to do some stuff a little differently than I would maybe ideally like to do it if we had a larger budget and more time and my body was a different body. But given that those are not our circumstances, what does it mean to let go? So I'd say one of the things these last number of years that's a big lesson for me is on one of the biggest projects that I've ever worked on, having to let go of a lot of really important parts of it all along the way and making some of those decisions in the edit and living with some of those decisions that you make in the edit and just getting comfortable with the amount that is actually out of my control, even though it's a film that my name is all over, 
there's just so many more ingredients. And I guess that would lead one to believe and myself included until I was in it. So learning to trust, learning to let go, learning to be a better communicator with my team, how to empower people to work at their height. You know, I'm a big basketball fan and there are certain NBA players who will get you X number of points and Y number of rebounds and Z number of, of uh, whatever. And there are other players who are really good at making the people around them better. And those are the ones who tend to be the ceiling raisers. Somebody who's really good at getting their own, they're probably more of a floor raiser than a ceiling raiser. They'll help you not bottom out quite as much, but there's going to be a limitation on what you as a team can achieve. And in filmmaking, even if it is a Quentin Tarantino film, like where there's real authorship of that particular voice and perspective, when those credits roll, you then see hundreds and hundreds of names because it is a team sport. And on Bombardier Blood, I needed to learn what did it, what does it mean to make my team better? Uh, because I can't just show up to you know give my X number of points and Y number of rebounds uh, all the time. So I got to figure out how I set these people up to succeed. Thanks for the sports ball reference. Did me collect that a lot better. (laughs) No, you know, I imagine, Patrick, that's a common theme that has probably shown up in your life, your entire life, right? Like being a young kid and maybe not being able to go on that basketball team or go on that ski hill or go do whatever dumb thing boys do. And I think that's probably (laughs) been something that you've been having to learn to let go of your entire life. And I think that as different points of monumental events in our life happen, that that's just going to be another moment for you to step up with all the coping skills that you've gathered through doing this over and over and over to kind of help you in those situations every time. I don't know. Because you could remain angry, right? And not do all these beautiful, amazing things. And instead, you're, you're facing it and you're going through the motions every time and you're learning as you go. And, you know, we're in the rare disease world. We know what high stakes mean. Let's be honest. If I make a film that's only okay, or if I'm a performer in something and I just downright stink, who cares? I'm alive. (laughs) Who cares? It doesn't act like it matters and it doesn't. And I have to remind myself of that too, because I take this stuff really seriously. And the amount of gray hairs in my head for things like debating, well, should we have a banana or a pear that he throws across the room? And like, let's have a, let's have six meetings to talk about this. Like we take some of this stuff so seriously and like it, it matters. But then there's other times where it's like, okay, we're making a web series. Like we're just, we're making a web series. This is not emergency brain surgery. We're not trying to put the first flag on the moon. Let's take a breath here. And that's important to do too. It makes the letting go a little easier sometimes <laughs> when it's like, let's zoom out and remember the bigger picture that we're a part of. Yes, perspective is no joke, and neither is our ability to adapt. So I commend you for all of that. That's very true, too. So what about now, Patrick? What are you focusing on right now? Or what's what are you super excited about? What's coming up next for you? Because you're the busiest man on the planet. I don't know about that, but I, there are enough things going on that I have to keep a calendar. So uh, there's a there's a couple things that are happening in the entertainment world that I am very excited about, and here's that the here comes the obnoxious part that I can't talk about yet, which is uh, <laughs> upsetting. But soon enough. But there's some really neat stuff with some. Um, you know, for Bombardier Blood, Alex Borstein from the marvelous Mrs. Maisel and Family Guy was a part of it. 
We also just released a film called My Beautiful Stutter about uh, kids who stutter on Discovery Plus. And we have on that Paul Rudd, Mariska Hargitay, and uh, World Series MVP George Springer as executive producers. And these projects and their, um, they've given way to other opportunities to work with other people of note on some pretty interesting stuff. That stuff takes tends to take a very long time to come together. So that's why there's some things coming up that like I'm very excited about to answer your question, but I can't quite talk about yet. So I guess people will just have to keep up with me, huh? On the socials to find out more, but (laughs) that's a good teaser. I'm, I'm in. Thank you. Thank you. So there's all that stuff. And then, um, I'd say more immediately, um, we are currently getting ready for, to move into our, our production for stop the bleeding. This, I don't know, this is year 76, 77, hard to keep track. We've been doing it for a long time, but this year we're doing a completely, um, animated season and through it uh, attempting to do some teaching around the clotting cascade. Now, I know you're all probably just riveted (laughs) hearing about animation to help understand the clotting cascade, but we're working with Comedy Central writers and people who have collaborations with the DeVito family and like some really funny people to figure out how do we do this in a way that like kids and adults alike will laugh and learn. So um, that's something I can talk about that we're working on that I'm very excited about, but it'll be a few months until that's out. That sounds super cool. I'm really excited for you guys. And yeah, I I can't stress enough. Go rent Bombay Dare Blood. It's such a beautiful film. And also we didn't talk about it too much, but one of your recent episodes where you and Natalie share your birth story, go listen to that episode. It's, it's so insightful. And like you said earlier, just the the importance of storytelling. I mean, if your wife went and educated her own midwife, right? And now medical medical yep. decisions are going to be made differently from that. So it's just so important to have these these conversations. Yeah, I'm just so grateful that y'all are doing it. And I've, I've learned so much from listening to you and watching films and your some of your web series so far. And I'm just excited for y'all. Well, thank you. I, I appreciate that, Effie. And I'm a big fan of the Once Upon a Gene podcast. Like I said, I had to do my prep this morning to make sure I was interesting <laughs> enough to uh, merit the time. But yeah, there's Bombardier Blood. I appreciate the plugs. It is, as you kind of referred to earlier, it's on all the places. It's on Apple, Amazon, Google Play. Uh, so you can rent it or buy it from pretty much any of those places. And also April 17th is World Hemophilia Day. So we're kind of right in the ballpark of the one day a year that the global hemophilia community kind of stands up together to be recognized. So not a bad way to uh, support World Hemophilia Day, as it were, by choosing to watch this entertaining documentary that will also show you footage from all seven continents. How about that? Yeah, it is beautiful, especially Antarctica. So what can those of us who aren't in the hemophilia community do to support you on that day? That's a a very kind question. If you are on any of the social platforms and you look up the hashtag uh, WHD2021 or even just the hashtag hemophilia around that day, you'll see plenty of things that you can choose to share or retweet or email to somebody. It really is a day of building awareness for, as I said, I'm I'm 35, I live a great life, very healthy. 75% of the world uh, is lucky to see age 20 if born with severe hemophilia. So we can't fool ourselves into thinking, oh, we're past having to worry about hemophilia. Far from. So the more that you can help amplify messages of awareness in any way that you can, that's, that's doing the work. So thank you for that. Okay. Well, is there anything that I didn't ask that you want to leave with our audience? 
Oh my goodness. I appreciated your questions. They were so interesting. Um, no, I mean, I, I think if people want, I know I appreciate the interest in like create the creative arts and where that kind of intersects with all this. I think there's a lot of interesting stuff to explore there. If, um, yeah, if you're not, uh, if you're not in the hemophilia world, um, you can still the bloodstream podcast. We try to make it entertaining and interesting. If you want to check out a little bit of that, um, or if you go to believe ltd.com or believe limited.com, you can see everything that we do. If you're kind of curious about this entertainment to affect change mission and things like my beautiful stutter and some of these other future film projects can learn a little bit more about all that at believelimited.com. Awesome. Yes. And Amy, your co-host is amazing. I love her. Yeah. Amy Board. Shout out to Amy Board. She's the best. I love her. Thank you. Congratulations on all (laughs) of your stuff that you have going on, especially uh, your new little baby girl. Congratulations. And we're all so happy for you. And thanks for being my guest today. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Anytime. I hope you've been enjoying this podcast. If you like what you hear, Please share this show with your people and please make sure to rate and review it on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also head over to Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter to connect with me and stay updated on the show. If you're interested in sharing your story or if you have anything you would like to contribute, please submit it to my website at effieparks.com. Thank you so much for listening to the show and for supporting me along the way. I appreciate y'all so much. I don't know what kind of day you're having, but if you need a little pick-me-up, Ford's got you.